came out of my flat today, just put the rubbish down the chute, looked up, and there was this fabulous rainbow. Did anybody see that rainbow at four o'clock this afternoon? Amazing, wasn't it? Double, double rainbow and very, very defined against a dark blue background like Akshobia's sky. It was amazing. So I thought, that was just, I was just leaving to come here and I thought, that's auspicious. So this evening will be a good evening, <laughs> the gods have said. So, uh, yeah, I was going to give a talk, um, but then I thought, we're listening to quite a lot of talks, aren't we? We've had Arta Priya, a lovely talk on Sunday, another lovely talk on Monday, a lovely talk yesterday. No doubt Nagabodi will be, give a great talk on Friday and then another talk by Parame. And I thought, we need a change. I know um, that Karl Mashila did something different as well, so I thought we'd have a change. Also, it meant that I didn't have to do very much work. <laughs> so um, I thought we'd just do something different this evening and we'll hear from the Mitras. We've heard from lots of order members, but let's hear from the Mitras. Yeah. So, that's what we're going to do. I am going to say something. I'm not just going to leave it all to them. So I've got things I want to say as well about Bansi's elucidation of the Dharma. But what I did is I asked three metras, Simon, Jill, Richard, to talk about one thing. Each, they all talk about one thing. One of Bante's elucidations of the Dharma, which has had a big effect on them, maybe an effect on their practice, maybe an effect on their lives. I thought that'd be really interesting to hear that. And I've got two or three things as well that I can share with you about Bante's teachings, which have affected me in a big way. So, um, yeah, so without further ado, because I know Simon's a bit nervous, so we need to get him up here and off so that he can enjoy the rest of the evening. Okay. Uh, thanks, Ratnaguna. Um, so, yeah, um, as Ratnaguna said, I've been coming to the centre for about two years now, and I became a Mitra in last November, so just, just three months now. Um, and in the time that I've been practising, the my, my sort of any spiritual progress I've made, it feels like it's been a sort of like a gentle trickle, like a bit of a drip feed, you know, it's... Uh, Almost so slow that sometimes I don't notice, but it has been quite quite gradual and, and always going. But it's only been one time really where I've I've had a, a sort of experience uh, that's been quite revelatory, where things have changed quite quickly. Um, and that was when I I found out about Sangrakshita's elucidation of perfect vision. Um, so yeah, so I've been coming regularly here for two years, but I actually first came to this centre uh, fourteen years ago. Um, I was age 12 and it was, it was a school visit. Um, I don't really remember much of the detail about that trip. I, I seem to remember the smell of incense and the wooden stairs seem to <laughs> stick in my mind somehow. Um, but the trip had a really big impact on me. Um, and the one, the one thing that really stuck with me was, uh, was the second noble truth. Uh, I don't know why, but that really, really chimed with me. And it's, uh, it felt... It felt like it was something that I'd kind of always known deep down inside, but it had just been sort of revealed to me, it had been made clear to me, um, and that always sticks with me. Um, but as a sort of young and nervous 12-year-old, I didn't really take the Buddhism forward. Um, then a few years later, age 15, uh, for reasons that I didn't understand at the time, I, I, I was told I needed to pick somewhere 
to do my work experience at school and I picked her uh, and I came and I worked in the Earth Cafe a bit and, and worked in centre office and like polished that big door and, and swept and, and I... Um, and I had a great time. All of my friends were stacking shelves at Tesco and I was there. It was fantastic. Um, yeah, and then after that, I, I came back and volunteered a few times, but I was 15 years old. And so there was all this drinking and partying and fun to be had. And that kind of got in the way of any serious commitment to, to Buddhism. Um, but over the years that followed, I, I maintained a passing interest in Buddhism. I'd, I'd read books and I'd, I'd, I'd listen to talks. Um, I was always very interested in, I guess, what I thought were the more sort of scientific, rational bits of Buddhism. I had quite an aversion to the sort of, the, you know, the mystical and the transcendent stuff. Um, yeah, and then after, after another, I guess, nine years, so two years ago, I was age 24, and I, I came back, and here I am, <laughs> still here. Um, and I guess what I've, what I've wondered is, what is it that made me keep coming back from the age of 12? kept coming back to Buddhism, either coming back to the centre or at least coming back to, to, to reading books or whatever. Um, and what I've come to realise is that what made me come back was perfect vision. Um, I first came across Sangharakshita's elucidation of perfect vision when I was doing my Buddhism 2 course, so pretty much this time two years ago. Um, then I was still very unsure about the transcendent, despite having come here for a few months. I've still, I always thought that was a bit weird. There was something that appealed to me about it, but also just didn't fit in with my worldview at all. Um, and I'd come across what Sangharakshita calls perfect vision before, um, but usually when I've seen it translated into English, it's been right understanding. That tends to be the standard, standard translation. And that, that never chimed with me at all. It always, always seemed like this... Uh, this quite conceptual thing that you've got a grasp. It's like I don't have right understanding at the moment, but then one day the penny's going to drop and then I'll, I'll have it. Um, and I just, it, I don't know, that never really made any sense to me, um, but it was what it had always been translated as. Um, then when, when we came to doing that in, uh, in the Level 2 class, um, well, Sangrakshita's formulation of it's very, very different. Um, he interrogates the terms, which is something I always find very useful. The terms that are usually, well, the, the Sanskrit for what's usually translated as right understanding is uh, samyak drusti. Um, samyak is the prefix um, to all of the limbs of the Eightfold Path. Um, and Sangrakshita really disparages the translation as right. He, sa- he says that it shouldn't be that at all. What he says is um, it gives the impression of a right understanding as opposed to a wrong understanding gives the impression of a rather narrow, purely moralistic interpretation of the path. Uh, and he suggests a whole load of alternatives. So uh, thorough, uh, whole, integral, and complete. Um, and then in the end, he, conf- he concludes that perfect is probably the best translation. He says probably. Um, so he's not entirely sure himself. Um, I think whether you agree with, with, with perfect as a translation or not, I, I then and still now find interrogating the terms a really useful thing to do. I think that um, otherwise you leave yourself at the mercy of a translator and certainly that, that can cause a lot of problems and I think in this case it had done. Um, the other term, Drusty, um, now Sangrakshita's point on this, he really, really hammers it home. He says that it's not simply understanding. In, in, um, in his book, The Noble Eightfold Path, in the chapter on Perfect Vision, I think... Maybe it's six different points. 
He says it's not simply understanding. He really, really hammers it home. And what he says is, Drusty is certainly not understanding in the purely theoretical, intellectual or abstract sense. It's something direct, immediate and intuitive. So it's, it's a direct experience of the nature of reality. Um, it's, it's not through a prism of concepts. It's something that's it's, it's an imminent phenomenon. It's, it's, it's like a sense and it's like having a vision. And that's how he translates it. Um, compared to right understanding, this appealed to me so much more. Um, and Sanger actually uses the, the analogy of the spiritual life being like climbing a mountain. And you've got all of these concepts and, and your doctrine and your ideas. They're like the map. You've got the map and it kind of tells you where you're going. But you can trust the map or, or not. You can have a lot of doubt in the map. Um, what perfect vision is, is it's when you, you're in the foothills of the mountain and you see the peak off in the distance. And you can doubt the map. You can doubt your concepts when you've seen the peak. When you've had an actual view of it, you know you're going in the right direction. Um, that's what perfect vision is. And that, for me, that's, it's, it's a really long way from, from the right understanding that I'd heard before. Um, and for me, that's what was, was really revelatory about that teaching, is that when we first discussed it in my, in my Buddhism 2 class, what I realised is that actually I'd already seen the peak. I, I, I realised that in my younger days I'd had these experiences which... I came to, to realise we're, we're perfect vision. At the time, I didn't have the concepts or, or, the, or the ideas to, to really interpret what those experiences were. They were just something other. Uh, and then they were misunderstood and then kind of forgotten about. But then when I came to hear Sangrakshita's version of, of Samyat Dristi as, as perfect vision, it made me realise what those experiences were. It's that I'd, I'd seen something sort of beyond and bigger than myself. Um, and what I realised is that's what kept bringing me back to Buddhism, actually, is that deep down inside I knew that that thing was there, that was something, like something that meaningful and that important. Um, and I guess that's, that's why this is the teaching that sticks out, the one that I wanted to talk about. It didn't, the teaching itself didn't give me uh, an experience of perfect vision. Um, but what it did, like when I was 12 and... and and came here, probably in this room, and first heard uh, the, the noble truth, and the second noble truth revealed something to me. Just like that, Sangrakshita's elucidation of perfect vision sort of showed me something that I already knew deep down, and it just brought it out and made it clear to me. Um, and I'm realising that. A lot of doubt, just, just a lot of doubt about the path, about my practice, it just fell away almost instantly. I mean, I remember coming out of that the class where we first discussed it and just feeling like, whoa. Um, yeah, and I guess, I guess that's it. I, I want to say is that I, I still feel like I'm very much in the foothills um, of, of, the, of the spiritual mountain that I'm climbing, but I'm not fumbling with a map anymore. I've actually, you know, I've seen the peak. I realise that I've seen it and I know that I'm heading in the right direction. And yeah, that's, uh, that's why that teaching means so much to me. Uh. So, yeah, I, I'd like to talk just a wee bit. Put the papers down, Jill. I'm sorry, going to be another <laughs> few minutes, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm going to give little talkettes between the talks. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about a teaching of Bante that goes back way, way, quite a long way back. Um, but it's connected with Perfect Vision, actually. It, it was Bante's teaching on stream entry. 
and just do me about uh, stream entry and um, the breaking of the first three fetters. I'm sure you all know all about that teaching. But the interesting thing about this is uh, what Banti has said is that you get this glimpse of a mountain top, uh, and but then you know it becomes so strong that you can never forget it. Um, <gasps> You can't put it aside, you know, it becomes the, the main thing in your life. And that happens when you break the first three fetters. There are ten fetters, as you know, keeping us bound to the world, to the world of suffering. And uh, on becoming a stream entrant, you break the first three. Now, the first three fetters are, the way the Buddha talks about them, they're very much embedded in Indian culture. So the first one is self-view. Now, self-view is really to do with the, uh, one of the main Indian traditions of that time was uh, um, Brahmanism. And they believed in the Atman, the self, the eternal self. Uh, so when you were born and reborn and reborn, it was essentially you as a self being reborn again and again and again and again. And the whole point of the spiritual life of the Brahmins was to, uh, for that self to eventually merge with, the, uh, with Brahman. So Atman, you merge with Brahman. Yeah. So that's the idea. Um, so this idea of a fixed, eternal self, yeah, going on and on and on and on. And self-view, uh, the breaking of the fetter of self-view is really breaking any idea that there's any truth in that, that there is some kind of eternal self. Second fetter. Um, what's the second fetter? Uh, going, uh, rites and rituals descends in themselves. Now, what's all that about? What it's about is, again, Brahmanism. is the idea that um, uh, in that religion you have to um, do a ritual absolutely perfectly and if you do that, then the gods reward you. So you might do a ritual for rain, and you have to do it absolutely right. And then if you do it right, the gods will reward you. So that's what a rite and a ritual is all about. So the Buddha said, that's just wrong. It's just a fetter keeping you bound to the world. So the breaking of that fetter is simply realising that that's just not true. Yeah? That rites and rituals don't really have any effect and what the Buddha did is he internalised that into your own practice. Third fetter is doubt. And that's simple. Uh, it's doubt in the Buddha's teachings. Yeah. So you break that on becoming a stream entrant. <clears throat> so you can see how embedded that whole thing is in ancient Indian society and religion. What Banti did, and I think in a lecture called The Takes of Freedom, brilliantly, uh, recast those three fetters in modern psychological terms. So the first fetter of self-view, he said, is habit. Self-view is basically habit, that you just do the same thing over and over again. And because you do the same thing over and over again, it gives you the illusion of being a self. Yeah? So his humour came in here. We've heard a little about his humour, haven't we? His humour came in here. He said, really, you're just a bundle of habits. That's all you are. That's all a self is, a bundle of habits. Probably a bad habit. So um, uh, I found that really, just such a really good way of understanding it, that the self, the idea of a self is, um, is 
uh, created simply by the fact that we do the same thing over and over again and we think the same things over and over again and we say the same things over and over again. And that gives you the illusion of being a being, a self. Yeah? More than that, he said, there's a social as- aspect to this. Is When you, as an individual, try to change, other people aren't really that keen on you changing and they try to keep you the way that you were by acting towards you as you used to be and you get this when you go home don't you you know when you're here you feel like you you are who you are and then you go home and your mum starts talking to you as if you're seven (laughs) and it's really difficult isn't it she's like mum i'm a grown man but no you'll always be my little gary it happens every time so it's not only mums and dads, but everyone tends to keep you in the groove that you've been in, in all this time. So that's the first fetter, the fetter of habit. Then the second fetter, rites and rituals as ends in themselves, bounty called superficiality. It's a superficial engagement with the spiritual life that you think somehow that just by coming along to the centre and sitting down with your eyes closed and somebody rings a bell, so you do what they say and you're sort of doing the mindfulness of breathing, but you're not really... You're just doing everything quite superficially on the surface. That's what that fetter is really all about. It's a kind of non-engagement with the real issues of the spiritual life and just sort of floating around on the surface. Challenging stuff, isn't it? Third fetter of doubt he calls vagueness. Yeah, vagueness. And you should have heard him. I don't know if you've heard that yet. You should have heard him with that word. He kind of spits it out. Vagueness. You know how he sometimes does so vagueness meaning that doubt in as a fetter doubt is not that honest kind of questioning of something which the buddha um encouraged it's more like a holding back from the truth because if you allowed the truth in it would have certain implications on your life in other words you'd have to change it so you kind of keep everything vague and woolly. You don't really clarify anything because to do so would be too difficult. So you keep it all back. So doubt, as a fetter, is really a holding back from the truth rather than the engagement with the truth. So those are the three fetters in modern psychological terms, which really made a lot of sense to me. But then he went on brilliantly to talk about their antidotes. And he said the antidote to the first fetter, habit, is creativity yeah not necessarily artistic creativity but creativity of being so that you don't do the same thing over and over again you don't think the same thoughts over and over again you don't have the same old conversations you bring newness and freshness to your life you live as if every moment were now rather than in the past second antidote the antidote to doubt is uh, uh Commitment, yeah? Really committing yourself to living the spiritual life deeply, a deep kind of commitment. And the third one, third uh, antidote, my mind is going, it begins with C, uh, creativity, commitment, and... Clarity. Clarity. <laughs> Clarity overcoming vagueness. So just being really clear, being courageous enough to be clear about the Dharma this is what the Dharma said oh I don't agree why don't you agree tell me in reasoned terms why you don't agree with this and really get it very very clear and it's interesting isn't it that 
when you do clarify something in the Dharma, you often feel something's got to change. I've got to live differently. And that's the challenge, isn't it? To really notice how you're living, clarify the situation, and therefore the corollary is I have to live differently. So this, this, that is a, one of Bante's teachings which had a really tremendous effect on me for many, many years. I kind of lived by that teaching. So anyway, enough from me. It's time now for me to introduce Jill. Okay. Right. Well, I haven't chosen a teaching. What I've chosen is a book. And it's the book, Sandharachita's, uh, The Buddha's Victory. And you might be quite surprised, it looks at first glance quite a slim, small and unassuming text. That's probably why, you know, I sort of bought it about seven years ago from a second-hand bookshop and then didn't pick it up again until four and a half years ago. And it was when I started um, to take up the um, prostration practice to the refuge and um, respect tree. And it's one of the books that um, I keep coming back to. And um, two main reasons, really. It acts as a written, I could say, a written touchstone or groundstone for me. So when I find myself intoxicated with ideas and experiences, I come back in written form to this. And I also um, come back to it because the kind of touchstone or the groundstone also acts as a stepping stone and a stepping stone or a flowering of a lotus to the possibilities and potentials. And it's the possibilities and potentials, both in the context of um, spiritual development, both of as an individual, but also as a Sangha and of a Tarantana community. Sangha Ratchata says in the book, um, in the FWBO, so the Tarantana um, Buddhist community now, we try to go back to the origins of things, we try to base ourselves on what is fundamental in Buddhism or in the Buddhist tradition. And through scriptures, Bhante revisits episodes and instances of the historical Buddha's life, covering the Buddha's quest and also series of steps to awakening, moving beyond spiritual individualism and teaching the Dharma and to Paranibbana, which obviously we celebrated last weekend. There's a chapter drawing out the principles of the collective spiritual life in in the Buddhist time. And there's also a chapter initially focusing on women's entry into the ordination process as well. And there's three kind of key influences. One is the connection for me of um, the way that Bhante chooses the scriptures and um, introduces me to the Buddha as a historical being and a figure that I can identify with as both an unenlightened and, I don't know yet, but an enlightened human being. So I kind of identify with the struggles and that has felt kind of really important to me. When I, um, when I picked, re-picked up this book, Doing the Prostration Practice, um, the Buddha sits on the centre, on the central um, lotus, um, so the Buddha central lotus <laughs> figure. Okay, and I couldn't really connect with the um, Buddha at all. Very much an idealised um, type. 
Um, but what happened was I started reading this and uh, just had a real resonance um, of um, his life. And as I was constructing the tree, the visualisation changed and I started to um, bring to mind a middle-aged or even an elderly, thin old man in tattered robes. And over kind of the next few months, what happened was that I then experienced a connection. Our hearts joined and we had a single heartbeat. And that was really important for me to engage um, with the practice. So kind of it wasn't sort of mechanistic in you know, terms of um, learning. And then following that experience, what happened was that I then developed um, a deepening connection with other figures, um, and particularly uh, the jinnas, or the spiritual warriors, as um, Bunty talks about. And in particular, first of all, Amoga Siddhi. So Amoga Siddhi is one of the five jinnas on the top of the tree. And Amoga Siddhi is fearlessness. And that lasted a year, that relationship. And then I connected um, with Amitabha. And one of them, Amitabha's, um, is about love and meta. And that was really important for me. And that lasted about a year. And then I connected a deep relationship and connection um, with Vajrasattva. And Vajrasattva is at the um, above. And again, it's associated with purification and blessings in particular. And I reflected and also spoke with friends um, about that process because I wasn't consciously or intentionally trying to connect them with any of these figures. Um, It was something that was working through me. And so exploring with friends and on reflections, I came to appreciate the different processes and the phases I was engaging with internally and externally. And Banti writes in this book... As the life of the Buddha reminds us, we have to overcome the group, attachment to the group, attitudes and conditionings, and also the internalised group. We have to overcome spiritual complacency and spiritual ambition. We have to overcome fear. We have to overcome that very human tendency to refuse to admit that we have made a mistake. And we have to overcome Mara. And we have to overcome spiritual individualism. That's my experience. Yes, so the Buddha's victory is all about uh, heroism, really, isn't it? It's the heroic ideal. And um, Monday evening, uh, Vidya Davis, Davis' lovely talk... She had a question and answer session afterwards, and Bridie, I think the last question actually was from Bridie, and Bridie asked her, is Bante humble? And um, uh, Vidji Davy answered, yes. Now, I would have said something different, actually. Uh, I would have said that Bante knows his own worth. He really knows his worth. Um, he's not humble in the that negative sense of the term at all um, I wouldn't be surprised if Banty considered himself to be one of the great teachers alive today I wouldn't be at all surprised if he felt that he's never said that but I wouldn't be surprised if he thought it um, if you read his memoirs 
there were so many times when um, he had to really stand up for the Dharma. Sometimes he stood up for himself, but most times he was standing up for the Dharma in a way that I just wouldn't have done. I have to say, when I was a young man, I just wouldn't have been able to do what he did. He really stood his ground very, very firmly. He knew what he was worth. He knew that he understood the Dharma, and he felt he really had to stand there firm. Very, very impressive. I don't know if you saw, ever saw, a few years ago, there was a panel, um, I'm going to say a panel show, it was a bit like a panel show in Germany at some big European Buddhist Union gig and uh, Banshee was on the panel and uh, two, three other eminent Buddhists, one of whom was uh, Thich Nhat Hanh do you know, the, do you know what I'm going to say? Yeah. do you know this? It, it was, it's really tremendous I haven't seen it for a long time now but um, Thich Nhat Hanh even then was famous um, and so they were asked, there was a question asked and Thich Nhat Hanh answered it and he started talking about um, be happy that was his main teaching in those days. Mindfulness and be happy, just be happy. And Banti said, I have to disagree. I have to disagree with that. We can't always be happy. We can always be friendly, but we can't always be happy. And then he went on to say, and, you know, if you don't mind me saying so, take that hand, when you came in today, you looked rather sad to me. <laughs> My goodness. It was completely unexpected. That's the kind of man Banty is. He is nothing if not self-confident. And he thinks that self-confidence is very, very important. Psychologically, but also spiritually. He thinks that one of our greatest fetters... We have to you know, think about our cultural conditioning here, don't we? Looks like most of us are from the UK, are we? Most of us are? Yeah. And you know what we're like. Um, when I teach the Metabhavna first stage, it's always a problem, isn't it, the first stage? Oh, it's selfish. It's selfish. Of all the selfish things that they do all the way through their life, doing the first stage of the Metabhavna, oh, it's selfish. No, you shouldn't do that. <laughs> Why? Why do we do that to ourselves? So, um, Bante thinks that we should have much more confidence in ourselves, much more confidence in ourselves. He... Uh, once on the seminar he spoke about um, he talked about uh, the, the Odyssey you know the, um, the famous Greek uh, thing, uh, poem <laughs> the great Greek poem uh, about Odysseus and um, he, he made the point that um, or he, said that he said that a few scholars had made the point they'd noticed that Odysseus or Ulysses was always referred to as that great hero, even when he was running away from someone. That great hero then ran away. <laughs> but the point the scholars had made, or a scholar had made, was actually he was a great hero, but not always. He wasn't always a great hero, but most of the time he was. So even when he was running away, we can call him that great hero running away from someone. And he went on to make the point that we should... Uh, relate to each other at our best at our best not at our worst which often is the way we should relate to each other at our best and if people relate to you at your best you begin to become your best you, can, you begin to become who you really are 
When people relate to you at your worst, it's hard not to fall into that role. But when they relate to you at your best, you can become that person, who you actually really are at your best. He once said that, um, uh, talking about stream entry and bodhisattvas, he said, well, maybe you're bodhisattvas, actually. You're just not having the greatest bodhisattva life at the moment. You're having an off life. But bodhisattvas have many, many lives, just as like we can have an off day. Even the nicest person can have a grumpy day. It's similarly, maybe we are bodhisattvas and we're not having the best of lives at the moment, the best bodhisattva lives. But you are much more than you imagine you are. We are much more than we imagine we are. And that's what Bhante wants us to really understand. He doesn't want us to be quiet and humble and self-effacing. He wants us to become who we really are or who we really can be. And there's a poem. It took me ages to find this poem today because I thought it was a late poem. But actually it's an early poem. He wrote it a long, long time ago. And actually when I found it, I realised, of course, it is one of his early poems because it's one of those poems that he's written in kind of oldly English poetry language. You know, with a lie, an I, A-Y-E. Whoever says I these days? <laughs> I. And alas, alas is in there. So it's one of those old-fashioned old poems before he met um, Allen Ginsberg, no doubt. <laughs> but anyway, this is called Secret Wings. Secret Wings. Some of it probably you'll find a little bit hard to follow at first uh, because, you know, it's old language and you think, what's, what's he saying there? But you will get the gist, I'm sure. We cry that we are weak, although we will not stir our secret wings. The world is dark because we are blind to the starriness of things. We pluck our rainbow-tinted plumes and with their heaven-born beauty try to fledge nocturnal shafts and then complain, alas, we cannot fly. We mutter, all is dust or else with mocking words accost the wise. Show us the sun which shines beyond the veil, and then we close our eyes. To powers above and powers beneath, in quest of truth, men sue for aid, who stand athwart the light, the light and fear the shadows that themselves have made. Oh, cry no more that you are weak, but stir and spread your secret wings and say it's a trouble with poetry isn't it and say the world is bright because we glimpse the starriness of things soar with your <clears throat> I just caught glimpses of those two <laughs> crying that's not fair <laughs> <laughs> Soar with your rainbow plumes and reach that near, far land where all are one, where beauty's face is eye unveiled, and every star shall be a sun. That's, that's what he wants us to do, you know. He wants us to grow into who we really are, not be sitting around in the shadows thinking, oh, we can't do it. 
Okay, so, got through that. <laughs> it's happened to me more and more these days. Um, so, we now come to Richard. All right, so thanks, Ratnaguna. Uh, so, the theme that I've chosen for the talk I'd like to give tonight is all to do with Sangha and spiritual friendship and spiritual community. Uh, I mean, it's a huge topic, and there's no way I could ever really get anything across in 10 minutes, but it's a theme that's become increasingly important to me in, as my Dharma life has progressed. And I think I'd like to begin with uh, your talk on Sunday, Arthur Priya, you, your retelling of Bante's life story. And the point where you told us about Bante, he'd gone back to India, he'd gone for his farewell tour to India because he was going to come back to the UK to teach. And then he got the letter, didn't he, that letter from the Hampstead Buddhist Vihara, um, asking him not to go back there. And Bante's response to that was to open the letter and read it, and he said to whoever it was that was with him at the time, well, you know what this means, don't you? It means a new Buddhist movement. And that movement for Bante was, his vision was always of a, of a movement that was based on spiritual practice, you know, a, a living spiritual community. So he didn't want it to be just a, a subscription society or a scholarly club. He wanted a living spiritual community that was made up of committed people who were interested in practicing the Dharma and making the three jewels a, a living reality in their own lives in fellowship with other people. And he's really emphasised this, hasn't he, throughout his teaching. And I just think it's just so important, partly because I think it's in community and Sangha that the Dharma starts to come out of the realm of theory and it starts to be realised and embodied uh, and made manifest in our actual lives and relationships between people. And it's also, I think, the key way in which we, we pick up the more subtle and intangible aspects of the Dharma. You know, those aspects that... You, you can't really pick up from a book or from a, or from a recorded lecture. You can only really pick them up from coming into contact with other people who've got the same values and ideals and who are trying to do the same thing you are. So working at the Buddhist Centre, um, you know, I come into contact with the living Dharma a lot. And I guess I'd just like to give you a few examples of, of ways in which that's, that's played out in my own life. So um, working here, I get to see a lot of exemplification. You know, I, I get to see a lot of generosity, actually. There's just so much generosity in this Sangha. And I was thinking of specific instances of exemplification, and one thing came immediately to mind. It was quite a, an ordinary experience in some ways, but it made a, a big impression on me. One day I was in the centre office, this is last year sometime, and it was lunchtime, and Surika had sat down to begin her lunch. And I think she'd taken a bite of her sandwich or something like that. And somebody came into the centre office and they were looking for Surika and they saw Surika. And they had, some kind of, they had some kind of issue or question that needed resolving. And Surika didn't send that person away. She didn't say, I'm on my lunch break. She was open to them. She was friendly. She was patient and listened to what they had to say. And once they'd had the conversation they needed to have, that person, that person left. And then I think you were on your second bite of your sandwich or something, and somebody else came in. <laughs> Surika, 
there's something that needs to be dealt with here, some question or something. And Sirika was just as open, just as friendly, just as approachable as she had been with the first person. And I don't know what it was about that afternoon, but it just seemed like this stream of people <laughs> came through the Buddhist Center office, and it seemed like all of them wanted Sirika for something or other. And what really impressed me that day was that it was a bit like whenever Sirika met the new person coming in, it was like a fresh interaction. She didn't close down, she stayed open, patient, friendly, approachable with all of those people that came to see her that day. And that just made a big impression on me. And um, I think particularly because when, when people exemplify like that, often they don't realize that they're exemplifying. They're actually just being themselves, aren't they? And that's, that's what makes it powerful. And when you see something strongly exemplified like that, well, I had this sense of, hmm, yeah, I, I can't emulate that yet. Yeah, I'm, I'm not there yet, but at least I know what it looks like. You know, and that's, that's a good place to start, isn't it? So another thing I get to see a lot of around the centre is, is change, people making real changes in their lives. You know, you get to see people becoming kinder, more open, more integrated, more appreciative, more emotionally positive. And that just gives us a lot of opportunities, doesn't it? It gives us a lot of opportunities to rejoice and celebrate that in one another. And it gives us a lot of opportunities to support one another, you know, in those inevitable trials and challenges of spiritual life. And I think, for me, it's been really important to see those changes happening in other people. Because it's given me confidence that, well, change is possible, you know, it's, it's, it can be so hard to to appreciate your own progress, you know, to see changes in yourself for all kinds of reasons. But if we see it in other people, then it just gives us confidence that that's possible. There's another thing to working in this building, which is, in a way, not to do with specific people. It's more to do with the kind of atmosphere that's created when you get a spiritual community kind of focused in a particular place. So if you've ever done volunteering on reception, you might have had this experience of seeing somebody come up the front steps of the Buddhist centre and they open the door and when they walk in, it's like they pick up on the atmosphere of this building, you know, that sort of quietly positive atmosphere. It's quite tangible, isn't it? And I think it's a similar kind of thing that can happen when we, when we come together to do collect, collective practices like pujas. Uh, certainly on this retreat, I've been really enjoying the pujas and there's just something about coming together and collectively reciting those words from those ancient texts, you know, the Bodhi, Bodhicharya Vatara, Refuges and Precepts, the Heart Sutra. We're reciting those words, offerings to the shrine, beautifully decorated shrine. And you can feel that responsive shraddha being evoked in yourself and, and somehow you can sense that in the people around you as well. And what I like to do after that final shanti has, has kind of faded into silence is just, just really feel that atmosphere that can be evoked during a puja. And sometimes I like to think that when we come together in that way, it's a little bit like, just temporarily, it's a bit like a, we collectively sort of touch into a different kind of dimension to our ordinary experience. Just a little bit. It's just like we get a little taste of something. 
I think it's similar to what you were talking about earlier, Simon. You were talking about that sense, that imminent sense of something. And it's a little bit like we can, we can touch into that with puja, can't we? So there's something about being in this, in this building a lot where you, you can just imbibe that kind of atmosphere. Yeah, there's, there's a lot more I'd really like to say about Sangha and friendship and spiritual community, but I think that's enough. I think that's giving you a bit of a sense of why this is important to me and why I've come to see the Sangha and the spiritual community as a bit like the living fruit of Bhante's elucidation of the Dharma. Those rainbows were... <laughs> so, uh, I just want to talk about one more thing now. And that is uh, a teaching that Bhante gave twice, actually, uh, in two different lectures. He gave it, first of all, in a lecture called Is a Guru Necessary? And uh, he, in that lecture, he talked about the difference between a difficulty and a problem. Do you remember? So a difficulty is, is something that can be sorted out. It can be solved, uh, given enough intelligence and time and effort and so on. Yeah? If, if you've got a difficulty in life, you can sort it out. A problem is a difficulty, but it's a special kind of difficulty. A problem cannot be solved on its own level. Yeah? But it has to be solved. Yeah? A problem cannot be solved on its own terms. And the terms of the problem cannot be changed. So he gave an example. He gave an example of someone that when he was living in Kalingpong, I think it was, somebody came to see him. A woman came to see him and she said, oh, my, my husband's driving me mad. Driving me mad. I've just got to, oh, I just can't live with him anymore. And Banti said, hmm, well, maybe you'll have to leave him. And she said, but I can't leave him. I can't leave this man. So the way Banti talked about the, the, the problem this woman had is, is in terms of a guru, uh, often you go to a guru hoping that you're, they'll solve your problems. Yeah. So they come to you with these insolvable problems and expect you to sort them out. And when you can't, they think you're not a very good teacher. So that's where it first came in. So at first he talks about problems in quite a derogatory kind of way, really, a kind of psychological knot that you get yourself into. Later, he must have thought this through a bit more because then in a lecture in the Sutra of Golden Light series, Transforming Self and World, the very first lecture, I think it was, the first or the second, probably the second, called The Bodhisattva's Dream. Now, if you've never heard that lecture, you must. You really, really must. That lecture is remarkable. You know what? Dharmadina was saying yesterday, she was talking about this, wasn't she? She was talking about lecture series he gave, like on the Sutra Golden Light and the Vimalakirti and Vesh. And she, she picked those two out especially and said it, it, was, it was just like inspiration. And it really, those lecture series, honestly, amazing, absolutely amazing. Uh, but the Sutra Golden Light, and this is the Bodhisattva's dream, even the title. Of a talk on Buddhism, the Bodhisattva's dream. Tremendous, isn't it? And uh, it relates to uh, an episode in the Sutra of Golden Light where the Bodhisattva does actually have a dream. He goes to sleep even though he was not tired. Ruchirikeju goes to sleep even though he was not tired. But before that, Ruchirikeju had a problem really bugging him. 
And his problem was that um, he did, he'd done a lot of study with Shuriketu, and uh, the, the problem was the Buddha, over many, many, many lifetimes, practiced generosity. Now, the more generous you are, the longer lived you are. But then when the Buddha came along and lived, he only lived for 80 years. But that's far too short. How can the Buddha practice generosity for innumerable lifetimes and then in his last life only live 80 years? It doesn't make sense. It didn't make sense to him. And it was a real problem. What Bhante says about this is, of course, it's not a problem for us because we don't have that much faith in Buddhism. You have to have a lot of faith in Buddhism to have that kind of doctrinal problem. Where most of us have problems is, is in our personal lives. Yeah, we have similar kind of things in our personal lives. I invite you now just to think about a problem you've had for 10 or 20 years. Yeah. How many of you had a problem for about 10 or 20 years? Let's say a difficult, something in yourself that you've been trying to change for 20 years. Quite a lot of us. Yeah. Okay. Hmm? Oh, yeah, the younger ones. Yeah, 10 years for the young ones. Yeah. So that's what it's like, isn't it? You struggle and struggle and struggle with yourself. And it's just like, I've still got this problem after 10, 20 years, maybe 30 years at my age, 60 years old, 40 years of problem. Honestly, that's true. But what Banti did in that lecture is, in the Ruchuaketu's dream, he changed the whole thing so that a problem was spiritually very, very good thing to have. A problem, remember, is something that you cannot solve on its own level, but you, it has to be solved. That's what happens, isn't it? You've got something bugging you, and you ha- it's on your mind, isn't it? It's hurting you in some way. Sometimes you wake up in the night and, <gasps> there it is, you've got this problem, and you really must try and solve it. And you try hard because you're a kind of... Um, the kind of person, Buddhists, who try hard at things. So you've been trying for a long time, probably talking to your spiritual friends about it. They're probably fed up with talking about it. <laughs> but there you are, you're, you're really trying hard to change this aspect of your life, but it's not happening. It's not happening. So, one thing's clear, it's not a difficulty then. If it were a difficulty, you would have solved it by now. Now that's good to know, because now you know you've got a problem. Now that changes the whole thing. That changes the whole thing. We tend to look at our problems as getting in the way of our spiritual life. Oh, I can't do this because that's in the way. But the problem is your spiritual life. The problem is your spiritual life. It's not in the way. It is your spiritual life. All you have to do is engage with it. And it's painful. And it's difficult. And you won't solve it while you are the kind of person you are at the moment. Yeah. The only way to solve it is to become the kind of person where that is not an issue. Yeah. You change so that you don't solve anything, but the problem is no longer a problem because you're a different person. Yeah. Now... In the lecture, Banzi describes what happens next. It's absolutely amazing. It really is tremendous. Ruchuakotu's, you know, trying to sort out this problem in much the same way that you and I would be dealing with a personal problem. You know, it's, oh, I've got to sort this out and I've been trying for years and I can't. 
sort it out. He's tackling this big problem. And what happens is suddenly, he's got a house, he's living in a house, suddenly the house enlarges. It becomes massive. And what was bricks and mortar and so on becomes beryl, this precious stone, semi-translucent stone. And in, as that happens, the whole world is changed. So the city around him, blind people begin to see and deaf people begin to hear and the hungry have food to eat. So the whole world around him is being transformed and within this house he's suddenly surrounded by four Buddhas. They're the prototypes of the four Buddhas of the five Buddha Mandala. So he's got a Buddhas of the south, a Buddhas of the north, a Buddhas of the east, a Buddhas of the west around him. And he's got the presence of mind to think, I've got this problem, I'll ask them. I'll ask them. <laughs> hey, the Buddha should have lived for longer. And they said, well, he didn't. <laughs> That's more or less it. They, they said it in other words as if they were really giving the teaching, but he said, well, he didn't, only in a few years. And he seemed satisfied with that. <laughs> but it hasn't really solved anything, has it? it, it the problem's still there. But Ruchu Ketu has become someone for whom that is no longer a problem. Amazing kind of teaching. And so the next time you're walking down the street preoccupied, worried about this thing that's been going on for a long time, just maybe entertain the possibility that that might be a really good thing. Yeah? This thing that's been bugging you and that causes you a lot of pain and anxiety and self-doubt, maybe it's really, really good. Maybe it's exactly what you need. Yeah? It's not in the way. It's not an impediment to your spiritual life. It's not that if only that was out of the way, you'd really be getting on with your spiritual life. If that was out of the way, there wouldn't be a spiritual life. The sp- Banshee said in that lecture, he said... If you've got a spiritual life, you'll have a problem. If you haven't got a problem, you're not living the spiritual life. Yeah? Now you're probably thinking, I haven't got a, st- I haven't got a problem. <laughs> That's your new problem. You've got one now. <laughs> Absolutely amazing. And then, Ruchiri Ketu falls asleep, even though he's not tired. And he has this dream. He has the Bodhisattva's dream. Fantastic. I won't tell you what it is. It's in the book. There's a book downstairs <laughs> called uh, Transformation of Self and World. And it's in there. Second chapter, I think it is. Might be the, anyway, it's called The Bodhisattva's Dream. Read it, because it is tremendously good.